All right. What's up? Hey, uh, Colin Trevorrow's directing episode nine. Is he? Oh my god. That's a shame. Yeah, there's a petition online to replace him with George Lucas, which I, honest to God, don't know which is worse. I'd rather have Lucas. But... He, here's a quote from him on IGN saying that the, the origin of Ray is profound and deeply satisfying. Cool. I wish it had been in the movie. Yep. Well, apparently it's going to be in episode nine. Neat. Yep. Well, I'm guessing since he has... If he's gotten the script and everything and he knows the story, I'm guessing he's the guy. He's not going to be replaced. No, he's official. According to this article, he is signed. He is the director. Boy, that's sad. Disney chose him based on the success of Jurassic World. You know, it's so annoying. Like, no one was going to make a failure with Jurassic World. It's no. not like, It's not like it was something that he did this brilliant thing with it. It was just... People wanted to see dinosaurs again. You could have like, given you could have given Ubol that fucking job, and it would have uh, still been a massive success. They could have given yeah. Jurassic World a Ubol film. People would have watched it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like I I just I, I don't understand, man. No, um, did Jurassic World do at all well critically? Uh, I don't I don't know. I hope not. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, seventy one on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm, just, I'm losing all faith. That's crazy. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Cinematic Tangent. 2016 is upon us! Oh my god, we're here, ladies and gentlemen. Thank god 2015 is over. Now we only have to look forward to award season. I'm your host, Chad Van Alston, and as usual, as always, and forever, Bradley Redder is here. Hey, that's me. Yeah, Brad, are you really excited for the Oscars? The nominations come out uh, tomorrow, and I bet you're really happy. Uh, I could honestly give a fuck about that. (laughs) (laughs) Are you going to live tweet again this year? Drunkenly live tweet? from the, yeah. the Oscar show Yeah, I think, I think I will. Yeah, we got invited. Uh, b- backstage passes, VIPs this year, Cinematic yeah. Tangent. I'm, I'm going to be hammered back there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not even going to be watching, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> all right, guys, welcome to Cinematic Tangent. So uh, 2015 is over, but we're going to briefly catch up here a little bit, uh, hit some of those last-minute 2015 films. Brad, The Revenant, Joy, and Hateful Eight, are they all 2015 movies, technically? They are. I really like. Where is the line for this? Let's get this out of the way. Where is the line? Is it like when you get your limited release? That's the year. When, yeah, I think at? it's when it officially gets a release on screens in America that isn't like a a festival screening. Okay, all right, fine. So 2015 uh, coming to a close. The I actually saw one 2016 film already, Brad, and that was The Forest. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I uh, don't recommend. Do not recommend The Forest. <laughs> Even if you sneak in for free like I did. All right, welcome to Cinematic Tangent, guys. We're going to start uh, We're gonna start by talking with The Revenant, which uh, just won a couple Golden Globes, Brad. I don't have them in front of me, uh, mostly because I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, But I'm pretty sure DiCaprio won for Best Drama Actor, and I'm pretty sure The Revenant won for Best Drama. Yeah, DiCaprio won for uh, Best Actor Who Ate a Raw Bison Liver. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> 
Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> so um, uh, this is from Aradu, uh, director of Birdman, uh, director of uh, great classics like Babel. Um, even if you don't love that movie, I'm sure you at least love Birdman. Fantastic filmmaker. Very excited to see what he does next. And he comes out with this very gritty, very dark, very realistic tale of, uh, I don't know, the American West, but not the West. What do you call it? Like the the settler period. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. We'll call uh, it the settler period. It's got to have a term, right? Isn't there? I, some I like of... how you. I like how you went from <laughs> know, a location see... to a time period. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, I don't know. I don't know what the hell it is. I don't know what the term is. I know there is one, but the the, the you know the frontier era of America. We'll go with frontier. Yeah. There we go. So it's, it takes place, and it's uh, this group of I don't know. They're fur traders, and they're traveling through the woods, and at some point in time. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, this is in the trailer. We're not going to really have a spoiler episode here. He gets attacked by a bear. Then the rest of the movie is him, like, trying to get back to his base camp to get vengeance upon this man who kills his son after this bear attack. And that's really the whole story. Kills his son and and leaves him for dead. It is. And, like, that is the, I mean, like, literally, Brad, am I wrong to say that is the entire story? Like, this is a very simple, like, straightforward kind of chase film. It's like a survival revenge tale, yeah. It is, and it's like a very slow-moving, two-and-a-half-hour-long, uh, snail-paced uh, chase film. Yeah, yeah, but a very slow chase. It is. and it, It's like but, a walking chase. But I'm going to go on a limb, and I, I know that I'm going to eat my words for this, especially in a year where Mad Max came out, but this may be the best-looking film I've ever seen. In terms of the visual design... Uh, it, it's unprecedented, man. Like what, like what Arado does with the photography, uh, with the constant close-ups where the actors are fogging the lens and like the the amazing, amazing uh, lighting and like the real natural shots. Holy shit, was this a good-looking movie, dude? This yeah, is unbelievable. I've been, I've been using the term unparalleled. Yeah, I mean, but 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 it, really, yeah, I, like, it seems bizarre to say that, but I was trying to think today if there was a film that I thought. Uh, Utilize not only great photographs, but also like an obvious uh, approach to the visuals that is so consistent as this movie. I don't know if I can come up with anything. No, and you know, especially because it was all like in nature too. Like they shot it all on location, and you know, there there are all these like uh, reports and articles about how how just hellish it was to shoot, and how much like Inuritu's crew hated him uh, by the end of it. And I think it went like months over schedule, like millions of dollars over budget. But man, it's it's all on the screen, uh, and it's it's gorgeous, almost to the point of, you know, almost to the point where it's a negative at times like it is so gorgeous like it's it's almost distracting it really um, is um yeah the one of my one of my uh one of my good friends actually said that the the nature effects and the like um a lot of those kind of things are itself are almost a character in and of itself like oh the, yeah the nature photography and i think that's absolutely accurate um i also feel like his films he really does this thing with um with the camera really acting like its own observer he really puts the audience in that role he did this a lot with birdman where the camera takes a lot of unnatural movements um, there's a term for it in the film, like when the camera's following the action directly, there's a term, and this is sort of the opposite. Well, he loves this idea of a camera acting as if it's a willing participant and another character is actually on screen. So it's constantly moving around while things are going on, looking at different stuff. And for us as the audience, that made me feel constantly engaged, even though I will admit this movie's about 40 minutes too long in terms of the story. Oh, yeah, easily. So, um... But, like, how do I condemn that when there's so much craft to the visuals? I feel like it would be a sin if you cut a single second of it. But at the same time, the movie would be more concise and, and, uh, and like, straightforward if you did cut some of this. So yeah, what do you, you do? Know, 
it, it's so funny like on that point you know like i think the day before i saw this i, I was thinking about action scenes in movies and thinking like man i, I you know i wish for once you know they, they would actually approach it like realistically because like i bumped my head on something and i was like seeing stars for a second and i was thinking about like these action sequences where where characters just get pummeled in the head and like they're just you know completely alert and and highly reactive and I was thinking, like, what the fuck? I would love to see a movie where, where people actually act, uh, like, realistically when they get hit or hurt. And this movie is, like, pretty much two and a half hours of that, of Leonardo DiCaprio just getting beat up. And it's this thing where, I, you know, while I was watching it, I was like, well, I, I guess I got my answer. This is why that never is shown realistically, because this is kind of boring to watch. But it's also what's sort of fascinating about it, is, you know, watching him actually struggle through like every movement after being hit, you know, attacked by a bear. You know, so it's kind of like this thing that if you, you know, the fact that it's all there is sort of the point and it's sort of like why it's engaging and there's like a visceral thrill to it. But it's also what makes it kind of boring and what makes it 40 minutes too long, because I thought like, what the fuck? I'm watching Leonardo DiCaprio crawl around on the ground for like 45 minutes and it kind of got old. Um, but like that yeah. is the reality <laughs> of, of being constantly hit and falling off cliffs and, you know, just having all these wounds on you that. Like, you know, so it's like this thing where it was it was exactly like the attraction of the film, but it was also a limitation at the same time. Yeah, absolutely the case, man. It, it is like I kind of want to talk about uh, DiCaprio's performance for a minute. And I feel like because that's the main praise I'm hearing from this film. Like, I'm sure this will be up for best cinematography and best editing or a few other awards. But primarily, like the selling point for this movie has been like, holy shit, look how great of a job DiCaprio did. And yeah. I will say this, I lost sight of the fact that it was a Hollywood star on screen several times, but I don't really feel like, and again, it goes back to what we're saying about the visuals. The visuals are the real reason to watch this film, and they're a great reason they're, to yeah, watch Yeah, they're it. the star. The characters are almost non-existent. They're archetypes. They're very underdeveloped. So for me to say that I feel like DiCaprio's performance was good, um, that seems a little difficult for me to be willing to admit just because there's no character development there. He's not getting inside anyone's head. It's more like he's just doing bizarre things unbehooved of a, you know, Hollywood star on screen. Like, yeah, you know, uncouth for a rich Hollywood actor to do. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, you know, I, I have to say I, I never lost. I always knew it was Leo on screen. Oh, um, did he? No, I, I have to say like several times I felt like, holy shit, you know, that's a real settler frontiersman out there. No, I you know I I kind of thought that about Tom Hardy, but I I I think the same holds for him that like you know he was basically just playing like a gruff kind of roughneck guy like he you know there was no real I, I don't know intricacies to the, well I mean th- there were I guess there were some intricacies to the performance. Tom but, Hardy did a great job. Who played the villain? That was Tom Hardy. Okay, yeah, he did a great job. That's what I thought. Yeah, no, he did a fantastic job. I actually thought he was the best actor in the film because I feel like he had some development because he was really playing this kind of like shady malicious character there's some there's some development there whereas DiCaprio is basically every man in the world which is like you killed my son and now I'm pissed about it but I feel like anyone can get into that yeah yeah I mean you know I I liked him kind of before the bear attack when you know because there was like this animosity between uh you know the fur traders and him who was like you know DiCaprio was sort of their guide and he brought along his like half Native American son with him that you know everyone kind of didn't like that he was there and so like the fact you know those scenes of him like trying to protect him and trying to keep him quiet and out of the way like I thought those scenes were really great but yeah after he gets attacked by the bear then then it kind of just felt like um sort of like stunt acting it kind of reminded me of uh, Eddie Redmayne and Theory of Everything where like he wasn't really I didn't really get a character out of it it was just that he was doing these you know 
amazing physical feats with his body. Right. It's kind of like um, a stunt show. It's almost, it's just yeah. bizarre that you would see a Hollywood actor like do things like eat a raw fish. You know, yeah, and I kind catch of feel like and eat a raw fish. Did eat a raw fish? I don't oh, think I'm, it was like yeah, a I'm pretty sure he there. did. And, gross, and he, man, it was disturbing. <laughs> so. Yeah, like it, it. Yeah, it. I mean, if it was special effects, it was way too. Oh. It was. It was extremely realistic. Because like, yeah, Brilliant. you saw like the grit and like all the like the innards of that fish. It was pretty disgusting. Yeah, and then the raw bison liver, which again, like it, like when he's cutting just, that bison apart, is what you're talking about. The uh, when, like chopping it up, pulling out its guts. Because that uh, was, like, disturbingly realistic to me. Like, you know. Well, that was the horse, I think, that you're okay, talking about. Okay, yeah, the about. horse, there, yeah. yeah. there were a lot of, like, really extreme things in this. And, again, it was one of those things that uh, that, that was sort of the attraction of it. Like, it, it, you know, it was showing these really realistic things. And it was pretty fascinating. But at times it was so fucking extreme that it was almost laughable. Like, I mean, there were there were a couple times when I kind of started giggling at it. That it was just like, oh, okay, this is this is a little bit absurd. You know, like he eats that raw bison liver and like there's a fire like seven feet away. If he just wanted to wait three minutes, he could have cooked the fucking thing. Um, but, you know, it was just that thing like we have to show like it wouldn't it be crazy if Leonardo DiCaprio ate a bison liver on screen? Uh so I don't know. I, yeah. I mean, it, it was something that it was cool to watch, I guess. Like there was something fascinating about it, but it was also like, uh, you know, this is a little, little extreme. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely the case. Uh, it, like some, but it was really amazing looking to the point where I couldn't completely tell how they did the effects. Usually I get some sort of idea of how it was done, but like when he's cutting apart the horse and pulling out its guts, it was amazing to me just as a lover of film to see that. Cause I know they're not actually cutting and killing a real horse. Right. I mean, but no. you, I mean, could have fooled me if they weren't. I'll tell you that right now. It was, yeah. It was, it was really disturbing, man. It was like, it was very, very realistic. And I looked uh, to the point where the special effects in this movie, they could be worthy of an Academy Award in and of themselves. It, just because they don't use a lot of com- computer effects is not an indication that they, they don't deserve that award. This was amazing. Like, well, this you know, was like, some amazing shit. Oh, I agree. Yeah. You know, and like, the bear attack is is kind of the best example. Um, and I mean, I think it's the one, the only, the only part where you can obviously tell it's CGI. Right. But like, I I don't know how else you would have done that. Still and the fact that they great. do they do Holy one shit. take, and I I don't know how they were like throwing Leonardo DiCaprio around like that because he gets, I mean, he gets tossed around, and it's like a good three or four minute shot of him just being like mauled by this bear and. Obviously, there wasn't a bear there, so I don't know how they did it. Again, man, it's one of those things where I can't figure out how they did this. I can't wait to. This is one of those films where I can't wait to watch a making of documentary. Yeah, that scene because I, I would can't, love to. I can't even tell how it was done. It's not like green screened in there. I mean, it's obviously done. It feels like it's done in an actual forest snowfield. Judging yeah. by all of the surrounding shots, I mean, god damn, this movie's gorgeous on every possible level. Uh, and, and like it's almost a masterpiece completely alone in the visuals where I think if you skip this film you're doing yourself a serious disservice but at the same time I would be lying if I said I, I really wanted to watch this again right now Brad I I, <laughs> I agree with you 1000% like I, I thought the same thing in the theater like man this is this is pretty great visually I'm glad I went to see this but I don't know if I ever need to see it again yeah, absolutely um, the case. Oh, by the way, the camera movements are motivated and unmotivated. So motivated camera movements are those that follow the action directly. And unmotivated are when the camera sort of acts on its own accord and looks at something that may be not directly part of a scene. A good example would be the, the end of Moonstruck when Jewison takes the camera and go looks at the family photo kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know why I just that's thought about nice that. That's a nice obscure example. It is, but it's actually something I remember in college, and that's why I used it. It's one of the examples the professor used. But uh, in this film, he, he uses both. 
like the camera will be right in everyone's face getting into the action but like sometimes things will be going on and he'll move away and like look at a tree and it's just like a bizarre it's, it's his approach to this that we saw with Birdman not so much with Babel where he really really thinks like the camera is an entity the camera is a living thing uh, in this film for him and he treats it as such and that is that's amazing in and of itself it's his style it's his voice it's what makes erotic films erotic films at this point uh, and this was a perfection of that idea that I think that he really started launching in Birdman. Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree. Because, like, you know, there's something where, like, I, I still, I don't know. Like, I say it's gorgeous to the point of distraction because, you know, I still don't know, like, exactly what he was expressing with this with this cinematography. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if he was just trying to get it in our in, in the characters' faces and, and just show, like, the adversity the of it. Fogging up of the lens. I think it's supposed to constantly remind you that there's really actors there and are really in a setting. Uh, you know, like in a natural setting, I think it's it's sort of his way of adding a level of realism to it by making the camera actually part of the action. Yeah, but it you works. know, like it, yeah, it works. But at the same time, it, it's one of those things where you know it was so outrageously gorgeous and and just elaborate that there were so many times when I, I the whole time I was just totally aware that I was watching a movie when I think the point of that cinematography is supposed to be the opposite. But, like, it was just so gore. I was just constantly asking, how the fuck did they do that? You know, like, there's a part where he, like, he goes over a cliff on a horse, and the camera is following him at full speed on this horse, goes over the cliff, and in one unbroken shot, it goes down, like, through a tree to see him on the ground. And it's like, I don't, like, you know, it was supposed to be something where like you know totally uh totally immersive yeah, again, but I, I was just scene, thinking like no how, how on earth did that happen how did they manage right, that exactly exactly and it's funny man because like you have a good point there it almost takes you out of your suspension of disbelief because you're so mesmerized by what's happening but i think that might be the that might be our fault like someone who can just get into a film and it doesn't have this sort of critical lens to like want to know exactly how it's made they may just see that scene as amazing looking because i That's can definitely true. go back and watch it a second time if i knew how it was made and probably enjoy it in a visceral way that I wouldn't have to think about. So, um, that's true. It's astonishing. Like that's an astonishing scene right there. That was maybe the best shot in the whole film when he falls into that tree. It was unreal. I yeah. just, uh, again, it, it was one of those things that like, it, it was so immersive that it was not immersive at all. Cause I was just like, Oh my God, how the, how did that happen? Know, how did they do it? Like, I don't know what uh, aspect ratio used for this, but I never felt like the screen was very wide. Cause he, like almost the entire film is used for close-ups and I think that's what makes shots like that one so effective when he finally pulls back and he shows something at like sort of a wide angle uh, you know we're able to see a lot more of what's going on and it's kind of shocking because it, at that moment it becomes a film whereas most of the time it feels like it's handheld right in the actor's face so some of those faraway shots are the most memorable the other one that I really loved is when they're going on the the hunt for the villain and you can see all the guys in the, the forest and it's just all their like torches glowing in the trees oh yeah really yeah wide shot that was amazing but before that we were like right in their face with the camera and i think that it, he jars this on purpose in order to sort of deliver an effect to remind you constantly that yep we did have this camera up close but we really are in this actual forest environment like you can see it this is not a movie set so it makes yeah. it more effective somehow and i don't know I oh, it, yeah it really it's poorly, very effective but... <laughs> uh yeah it's very effective but then you know like there there are things like that which I thought were really great but then you know again there were, there were more things like the um like that that over the cliff shot like there was the one in the beginning uh during that battle scene where during the uh when they get ambushed uh and um, there there's one unbroken shot where it, it's like it follows a character who gets killed by somebody and then follows the person that killed him into the person that 
and until somebody kills him and then like somebody on a horse kills him like cuts his head off and it follows like on the end of the blade until somebody shoots the guy off the horse and then it comes off the horse like i I was just like how the fuck did they do this uh you know and it was something that it was an amazing shot but again it was like that thing where I, i was so taken out of the movie by my appreciation for the cinematography that Again, gorgeous to the point of distraction. Do you think that was um, a digital created shot? Was it like that scene in uh, Children I, of Men? Where I don't you, know, man. Because I got to tell you, it looked like one unbroken movement. It, it really it was did. Like, uh, it was basically like a perfection of that awesome shot in the Avengers film. Yeah, where they yeah. <laughs> go through the city and show everybody, except this was much more close quarter. It really did feel like you could pull this off if you had the like the proper camera on some sort of mount or movement crane that I don't completely understand. You maybe could pull this shot off. But I, like, but I just don't know how they do it because it was like changing heights, changing speeds. Yeah, like, it's got to be digital. It's got to be. It, but like, had it to didn't look like it was at all. It really didn't. That's it looked amazing. so seamless. Yeah. Um, God yeah, damn, I, what a fucking you know, masterpiece, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, masterpiece of like filmmaking. Uh, you know, yeah. as an actual film, I just, I mean, there were parts of it that were just kind of asinine. And, and you know, like you said, it's, it's a good 30, 40 minutes too long. It is. Like, I don't necessarily um, think all this stuff would like, there's this constant flashbacks. At first, I thought it kind of was adding something poignant to it. But it really goes nowhere, especially like in the thir- the second act, beginning of the third act, it's pretty obvious that it kind of vanishes. But there's this whole side story with like his dead wife, whose wife has already died, and Leonardo DiCaprio has allegedly killed this officer. This is like brought up really early oh, in the yeah, film. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like told in flashbacks, which aren't explained, which I really appreciate because I don't want explanation in films. But at the same time, um, I wish that there was more of them or less of them. So either they had no importance or... Or much more importance because as as it stands, uh, there's just not enough of it for it to be meaningful to the overall narrative. And I yeah, don't I know what kind of emotion it adds. And since we really don't get to know Leonardo DiCaprio's character, I'm not sure it adds to his development in any way. So I, I totally it, agree. It yeah, and flops. Then, and then yeah, there were like because you know there are shots of him dreaming, and then there there are times when he like wakes up and his wife is floating above him. But there's such a good shot. I know. Yeah, it's like really well presented, but it <laughs> yeah. was just like what what is this? Um, you know, I, I can say the same of um, the. There's like a weird subplot where there are Indians chasing him, or or actually, I don't know who they were chasing. I don't know if they were chasing him or Tom Hardy or the group as a whole. Um, but like they meet up with some Frenchmen who are just randomly in the woods and get some horses, and it's kind of like cutting back to them looking for their daughter or something for for like a long time. And I just felt like you could have cut all that stuff out because it doesn't develop them as characters at all. It's again that that point of view problem. Uh, handles it like a like a cheap action movie where it just con- you know it just randomly cuts to them you know when they're like tracking them they see like some footprints or something like that and they're like oh we got to go this way you know it's just like uh eh, we we could have done without that that could have cut out a good like 12 minutes of the movie yeah you know i don't know what the purpose of that was originally i didn't have a problem with it cuz i kind of like the uh i kind of loved the ending i thought the ending of this film was perfect in and of itself in terms of the way it's shot and the way it's presented but the more i thought about it in terms of the story the less sense it makes because it goes back to that sort of Indian tribe looking for this girl and it's like a side story that really doesn't necessarily completely intertwine with the main one. They have some crossover during some certain scenes with a couple characters, but I don't really know why that was in there. I feel like it was almost, and this is really stupid to say, and I don't mean this in an offensive manner, but I feel like it was almost obligatory for them to cover the Native Americans more because they were so much part of this historical period. 
and it it adds to the idea that I have that this film has somewhat of an identity crisis because it at one end it wants to be a very realistic historically grounded film and on the other hand it wants to be this visual visual kind of visceral completely emotional masterpiece so I feel like the Native American stuff is sort of added in there to ground it in historical reality but it doesn't add to the uh, to the storytelling or the narrative in any significant way. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't have put it any better than wow. that. Wow, oh, thank God, because I don't want to, like, <laughs> it's Saturn, because, like, I do feel like this is one of those groups that is underrepresented in film in terms of, like, having a serious role, and this film really does a great job of presenting them in a, I don't know, I don't know, like, a realistic light, like, uh, you know, like, these weren't, like, vicious savages or, you know, uh, dumb natives or anything like that, but at the yeah, same time, yeah, I guess like, you're they don't right. really add anything significant to the film. So yeah, they, yeah, they they add nothing, and in fact, I, I think they take away a little bit. I mean, I, I you know, I think they're they're in there periodically because they have an impact on that last scene. Um, but I think I, I think that scene would have made sense without cutting back to them constantly. It would have, and like they try to drive it home too with like Leonardo DiCaprio's character, his son is half native, it's half Native American, and like his yeah. wife is Native American when she died. And that kind of thing, or was Native American the whole time she lived and died. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> God, I've made a couple of fumbles today. Uh, unbehooved. But anyway, um, so like they try and drive that back, and I feel like the Native Americans are sort of added to that to sort of make his death more significant. But I don't really know how they tie together. Um, only that I feel like the film wants me to tie them together. Like, we want to see his relationship, Leonardo DiCaprio's constantly with sort of the Native American tribes, but we don't really get to see enough of it to understand it in any way. It's really yeah. strange. It's really, really strange. All those elements, to, um, you know, all those elements are. So yeah, I I, I totally agree. Um, um, I guess we gotta we gotta kind of move on. But is there we gotta? I mean, there's so much we could say about this. I really almost want to spoil the ending, but I know I can't. I'm just gonna say that Brad, uh, the last shot where they sort of bring back in that sort of spiritual element again, for whatever reason, I thought it was very effective in the last scene to the point where it kind of moved me. But it's really hard for me to explain rationally why that is. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, you know, and I, I guess like overall, I don't know. I'm a little like conflicted on how I feel about it, but I I think it's it's too gorgeous to ignore. Um, and it's it's I, I don't know. It's it's well worth enduring. Uh, the extra runtime and and some of those like more asinine or, or sort of laughable uh, like moments in the film. Is it gonna um, make your top ten? It's a weak year, so probably, I mean, it's, I guess it's, it's going to make mine. I'll tell you right now. And, like, just because of the visuals alone, I don't really necessarily think the story is great, but I want to, like, make it perfectly clear that I loved seeing this movie. I don't need to see yeah. it again for a long time. I think time. I did, too, yeah. But, yeah, I think I'll watch it again sometime, uh, like, a couple years from now. But, yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't have, like, an overarching need to, like, run back out to the theater and see it. You know, we always want to do that show about directors on uh, Desert Island. You know, for attracting a direct Desert Island or whatever, like what 10 directors' films and their future canon oh, yeah, you take yeah. with you. I feel like Arati might be on my list now just because of this and Birdman. Like, I now I'm really would. curious about him. With Babel, I, you know, it was a good movie, but I didn't really care about him that much. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think he's one of those guys that is, you know, I feel like in the future, if, even if he makes bad movies, they will be really interesting. Oh, yeah. No doubt about um, it. Man. He's way too talented. Yeah, and I think this is this is definitely evidence of that. Where yeah, even even uh, like his filmmaking is is good enough to overcome some some more asinine kind of plot points. And I mean, the story in this could have made zero sense and been a complete disaster, and this would have still been a watchable good film. That's amazing. Yeah, me. yeah, <laughs> and, and and a definite theatrical experience. Yes. Speaking of films that aren't Brad that are just too long, 
<laughs> Hateful Eight by Quentin Tarantino. Um, I, Brad, I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm the resident Tarantino fan on the show. Would yeah, be... I'm the resident former Tarantino yeah, fan. Yeah, the former. Okay, like, I love Tarantino. Okay, I think he's super talented. I love Inglorious Bastards. Django and Chain made my top 10 for the year. Kill Bills, Jackie Brown, you name it. Everything except Reservoir Dogs. Love his movies. Brad, I was very excited for The Hateful Eight. I had made the claim previously that it was definitely going to be my top ten for the year. <laughs> well, How's after seeing it, it? <laughs> it is not on my top ten for the year. In fact, it wouldn't make my top ten in any year, even a weaker year than 2015, uh, which is sad because, again, very well-made film, a lot of Tarantino's patented charm, a lot of his patented humor, and I've seen it all before, and I'm just it, it, done. Well, I think it's a lot more of his patented self-indulgence. Oh, God. He's like – I I mean this is Wait, like seriously so, some of the most narcissistic shit like I've ever who, seen. Who, who's, who do you think is more uh, self-indulgent, Quentin Tarantino or Peter Jackson? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? That's actually <laughs> – you know, I would – like years ago when it was just Lord of the Rings, I don't know if I'd say Jackson fit that list. But I'm going to have to say it has to be Tarantino just because Tarantino is so arrogant – in this movie that he literally in the third act spends time showing you some of the same scenes from a different perspective just so we can add in the stupid plot just to make the film longer for seemingly no reason at all other than the fact that you want to see more Tarantino. Yeah. God damn it. Whereas I feel like Jackson, you know, there was the studio involved. They made him make the Hobbit three films. So who knows what the full story is there. But like Tarantino has auteur levels of control over his movies which are really a rarity these days, and he makes the exact film he wants, and when they come out bad, you can't blame anyone but him. And my God, dude, like, after the first hour of this, which I thought was great, the last hour and a half were just awful to watch. Just completely took me hostage. Uh, oh. yeah, hostage is the perfect oh word. My yeah, um, <clears throat> We're going to yeah, spoil like, this one because there's no spoilers, right? Like, I have to spoil this film. It's the only way to talk about some of the plot twists fairly. I'll try not to spoil the awesome murder mystery element which you're gonna love that's gonna appear out of nowhere in that third act <laughs> god damn it <laughs> yeah you know like i i do wish i had i had been able to see this in 70 millimeter um yeah me too but unfortunately beautiful, it's just actually. not it's not playing anywhere within like a five hour radius of me uh and i you know normally i, I would have gone down to new york city to see this but i'm on like I, I i don't drink in january and i'm on this weird diet so i can't even enjoy food so i would just be like spending 80 dollars to go to new york city and see this movie uh and i, I don't know i just couldn't justify it but i, I mean <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know like what to say i i, I don't know if uh seeing it in 70 millimeter would have made it any better um as i understand it version is longer it's uh it's listed as like 20 or 25 minutes longer but uh there's like a 15 minute intermission yeah and like a three minute overture in the beginning i think the actual film is only about six or seven minutes longer like god damn it even even that sounds a little self-indulgent it is you know i think it's i think it's kind of cool it reminds me of what he did with grindhouse which i also didn't like um presentation i I I saw that yeah and that was great so did i um no well i saw it in the theater i didn't think it was great but um no, I, meant, I, thought, talk, I thought it was great to see it. I don't think the movies themselves were that great. But, yeah, okay, yeah. I agree. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I wish I could have seen it in 70 millimeter, but I still I still just don't. I don't know if that would have made it better. I mean, it definitely would have made it longer, which would have annoyed me. But I, I do think um, having that intermission there would have helped a little bit, um, you know, because it is, it is sort of designed to have a break in it. 
And so seeing seeing that second half directly after the first half may have hurt it a little bit, but it's also that the you know the second half literally like brings in some ridiculous stupid narration and just you know redirects the movie into like this dumbass who done it oh god it's that so bad i, I, remember, I just like, didn't give a read shit something where his inspirations for the film were like the great silence and agatha christie novels and i was like what the fuck like agatha christie novels i get it now after seeing this i, I understand <laughs> yeah. and let me tell you like those things go together as well as you think they do in your imagination which is that they don't <laughs> fit dude they don't fit yeah there's a stupid whodunit about who poisoned the goddamn coffee in the, in the middle of this movie which is literally just an excuse to add a whole bunch of extra scenes so that we can solve the mystery later and rewatch some of the same stuff through the villain's perspective which was yeah. just ridiculous that was where i really felt like i was being taken hostage because i'm like no that was so boring to watch before and now i have to watch it again <laughs> well and it's so strange for tarantino to do that too it because is, like it it's uh, like he's usually like you know even when i don't like him he's 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 usually very in control of what he's doing right. and I, I just felt like this was this was like a stupid way to like manufacture some kind of drama or suspense or mystery because they literally like the narrator literally says like oh daisy you know, while this was going on, Daisy saw someone poison the coffee. And, like, <laughs> then they, like, show, like, a shadow figure you know what's poisoning, sad? Is dumping this happens, something in. This puts a halt to one of the best scenes in the film, too. It puts oh, a halt yeah. to one of the best scenes in the movie, and then it drives it drives in the stupid murder mystery. Which, by the way, is literally solved by a, and I'm not exaggerating, a 20-minute, narr- narr- like, a monologue dialogue sequence with Samuel Jackson, and that solves the entire mystery. And oh, then dude, we have the to whole fucking movie is a it. monologue dialogue. What's that? The whole fucking movie is a monologue oh, yeah. dialogue. Well, that's how Tarantino films are, and I expected that going in. His characters come in, they get really comfortable. They, you know, they make long-winded statements, and that's like part of his long-winded. Humor. But the dialogue's statements. always great, and the dialogue in this is often very good too. It's just that w- once I felt like I was no longer advancing towards something, which is when he introduced this "Who poisoned the coffee?" sub story. At that point in time, the dialogue literally went from clever to annoying. Like unbelievably oh, yeah. annoying. I mean, I think it had. A, yeah, I, th- I think it had. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's the charm is that like while you're while you're engrossed in it, like Tarantino dialogue is the best, it is, and man. you know he does this thing it where is. he just like he does, you know, again self indulgently he elongates scenes and and conversations for for just the reason of of like enjoying the dialogue for longer and um. Well, it's know, also so it's makes his, like, it also makes it short sort of effective as well, right? Like, so, like, if you have these long, slow dialogue sequences, when a character says or does something shocking at the end of them, it makes that moment more effective. Oh, yeah, it really, like it really punches it in. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I, I agree. But, you know, so, like, while you're watching it and while you're enjoying it, it's great that he's doing that. Like, when I watch older Tarantino films, I love that. You know, I, I love, like, the end of Kill Bill when Bill just has, you know, uh, the bride sit down and, and they just monologues to her for like 10 minutes like i love it because i'm loving the movie at that point but yeah when you're not into it it is fucking heinously bad oh yeah Um, (laughs) yeah no doubt about it man it's like unforgivable you know and and like i guess that like the trajectory sorry i wow i had a stroke while i said that the trajectory of this film is like it's late yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm on my second cup of coffee um and I wish I had coffee while I was watching Hateful Eight. At least that you didn't say really unbehooved either instead of unbecoming. Like, unbehooved <laughs> is even a word. What the hell is that? God damn it, I'm tired. <laughs> no, but the directory for me was, uh, you know, like, I, I was pretty excited to see the movie. I, I Earlier that day, I'd watched uh, Reservoir Dogs for, like, the first time in 10 or 12 years. And, well, I, I don't think it's a very good film. I, I kind of enjoyed it. Um, you know, so I was like, I, I, like, I sprang up out of my chair, took a shower, and, like, ran to the theater to see this. And... 
I, you know, I was really into it for about 45 minutes. I, I thought it was kind of great. It was gorgeous to look at. Uh, the dialogue was fantastic. I love the like the development of the characters that was starting out with Kurt Russell and uh, and Jennifer Jason Lee and Samuel L. Jackson. I thought it was amazing. Uh, and you know, again, I thought the dialogue was fantastic. But once, pretty much, once they get to the hotel where the bulk of the movie takes place in you know in one single room, and we meet uh, you know like Tim Roth doing his Christoph Waltz impression. Um, oh my I just... god, that is that is that was a harsh criticism right there. But you're not wrong. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. He's very similar to Christoph Waltz's character, except oh, that he's yeah. not Christoph Waltz. Yeah, so, so he, yeah, like he doesn't get the affectations quite right. Um, but he has like a shitty accent, um, which he's faking, which, which his character is faking. Yeah, which is funny. But it, it was still obnoxious to watch for like the first for you know for an hour while I didn't know that he was faking. Right. Um, well, I kind of felt like it was obvious he was faking from the get go, and I think that's part of Tarantino's charm is he always gives you sort of wink and nods. So this guy's a very very appropriate, almost too appropriate British accent, and he's like the what is he like the hangman in a town in Minnesota? Come on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it made me laugh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but like once it gets once it, once it gets there, it, it's you know it kind of just reminded me of the last hour of Django Unchained, where it's great up until then, but then it's just Tarantino spinning his wheels and again elongating the sequence. That's because for no you want to see more of me. Yeah, me. yeah, it's just the, it's the me show for Tarantino, and man, no one is a bigger fan of Tarantino than Quentin Tarantino. Um, Oh, because uh, yeah like I, I just thought it was it was painful to watch and it was something that like I, I, I never do this but I, I thought hard about uh, walking out of the movie because I, I just like I'm not getting anything out of this I did too man like as soon as they introduced that coffee plot I was like okay well I'll, I'll let this go yeah, even yeah. though you added, you <laughs> added some ridiculous narration which had never existed up to this point fine and just like the you thing know? about that too was that it was like Comes so out of sparsely yeah, in like, the third act know, of the film what the hell yeah. is that well, you know, and again, like I think this is where it would have helped to see the uh, the seventy millimeter because you know coming back from an intermission like that would have been kind of cool. Like our story picks up with this, you know, it would have been like a, a kind of an interesting reintroduction into the film. But then, like he kind of does it, you know, he goes like forty minutes without it and then brings it back. And then it was just like, what are you doing? Why? Like uh, I want to, like I want to make sure I clarify. Like I love Tarantino and I love the way he presents things. Like this is just. This was a little too much, and I felt like it was his way of not doing anything different and sort of just, like, having an ode to his past films and his past presentations. I don't even know what the hell he was thinking. Like, that third act is literally, like, it's literally Tarantino wanting you to stay around just because you like him and you want to be there a little longer, because I felt like things were just about getting resolved at that point. And then he throws in this wrench, which I guess is the second plot point, literally just to keep you there for another 40 minutes. Yeah. You know, it's funny, like, you know, watching, you know, I rewatched Inglorious Bastards today and, you know, like watching his films, you know, it's normally like watching him. They're like, they're very masturbatory. Like, you know, he's just kind of in love with himself. But watching this, especially that that latter half, uh, it it was kind of like watching Quentin Tarantino masturbate to a Quentin Tarantino film. It really was. It was. It was not like just, I always felt like the the sort of odes to himself, the nods to himself, and stuff in his films are kind of funny. And I think that his arrogance is all part of his image. It's part of his auteur voice and all that kind of stuff. But this film is like he literally forgot that it's part of his sort of satirical charm, and now it's just him being a narcissist in this last act. Of the film. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But you know, so yeah, like going back to like how how bad it was once they hit the uh, the inn. Uh, then, you know, the, the end of the, you know, the first act or the, you know, before the intermission that, that long Samuel L. Jackson sequence where he's, you know, coaxing Bruce Dern out before he kills him. 
Uh, I thought that scene was fucking genius. There are several uh, it, scenes in here that are genius. I want to like, I want to yeah. go out on the limb there. Like, there you know, are several it, scenes that are great. It, it was this thing that was like, okay, I like the first forty five minutes, and then there's a down half hour, and then this like fifteen minute scene is incredible. And I just thought, like, man, maybe the movie's really finally like jump starting, and it's gonna get great. And then it's like, yeah, literally cuts to black, comes back up with the poison coffee plot, and it was like, oh. God, like, why? Why did you do that? It's because you want to watch the same goddamn thing again that you just fucking watched, except this time we'll solve the mystery from a new perspective. Ridiculous. We'll, we'll, we'll create a mystery yeah, and we'll then a, solve an it. artificial mystery that did not need to happen, uh, that they sort of set up earlier with, like, this Mexican caretaker and Samuel Jackson doesn't believe that he's the real caretaker of this, you know, hostile or whatever the case may be. Come on. You know, I, I really wanted to make a snoring noise there, but I didn't think I could pull it off effectively. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Mine would have just been a pig snort. But, like, I actually will say that when they first got to the hostel and, like, they're all interacting and stuff, I kind of like the dynamic. I like the idea of it, like, being a North and South kind of Civil War dynamic between the characters. I thought we were learning about the new people. They were kind of interesting. It had sort of this, uh, you know, 12 Angry Men vibe to it where they're all sort of trapped in this room by, by you know, not by choice, but because this blizzard outside is keeping them there. You, but I, the, it's, like, that goes on too long. It goes on well, too you know, long. like I, I guess I'd agree with that, but I, I think the 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 main difference, the important difference between those is is that Twelve Angry Men is constantly moving toward a point. It has a direction where it's going, and we know that, and we want to see how it gets solved. Whereas this is just like he just throws a bunch of characters that hate each other into a room, and it's supposed to be like a a pot boiler or something. You know, like yeah, I, it's I, not I don't enough. Know, like, I, it's not enough. I, I I didn't feel the tension quite enough for that to be truly interesting to me. Um, so it was kind of just like watching a really long scene that I didn't give a shit about. Yeah, you know what? Um, I think Tarantino's a great writer, so I mean this with the utmost uh, respect to his talent. I just don't like this film. But I was reading a screenplay that I wrote last year, uh, and I just, it was bad, right? So, like, I had lost a sort of a point of my, you know, my plot points sort of got muffled, and my three acts got sort of muffled. So just, like, the characters do this, now they do this, now they do this. That's how mm -hmm. I felt like the entire second and third act of this movie was, where he just wrote a scene wrote a scene, interesting dialogue in a scene, wrote an interesting scene, and then, like, kind of hope they tie together into something. But you're right, Brad. What's not established is what the fuck are we moving towards? We're yeah. trying to get to this town to drop off this girl, you know, for a bounty. and But, like, at some point in time, I forgot that that was really going on because we spend so much time in this room bitching about random shit and, like, having, you know, random conversations, some of which are funny and some of which are not. Um, you know, yeah, and I th in, in some of which make a point, but a lot of which don't. And no. like, you know, I thought I thought some of the point and some of like the you know the observations on like race relations and the history of like institutionalized racism in America were were really interesting. Like, there's a line somewhere where like somebody says like when black folks are scared, that's when white people white people feel the safest. Yeah, like, bravo, I thought that was man. really interesting, bravo. and that's that's pretty much speaking to 2015. Uh, and I thought that was fascinating that he was able to do that in a movie set in 1870. Yeah, he does a good um, job like, of that. Again, you know, like that like, same line, too, on that same note when he, he pulls out the – there's this whole reoccurring theme where Samuel Jackson has this letter from Lincoln, which is pretty obvious to the audience that it's bullshit. 
You know what I mean? Just because when he reads it out loud at the beginning, it, it sounds really silly. Um, you know, I, I don't think it it wasn't obvious to me, and I think it's just because oh, like, it was that's obvious to that, me when he puts that line in there about like, oh, well, Martha's telling me I gotta go to bed. Like, yeah, yeah, Lincoln would write that. <laughs> well, you know, like I, I like that just struck me as like that's a Tarantino thing. Like he has these these sort of like uh, strange realities where people speak kind of like that. So like that that sort of made sense to me. Okay, you know, and, that's fair. You know, he does that's like a historical cool. revisionism a lot, and he's like on a on a on a tear. Where but he's he doing used that. it to make an interesting social point, which I thought oh, was, was very great. effective, and that was like, yeah. another good scene. And like there are really gems in this movie. And this is an example of like we talked about the Revenant being a little too long. The Revenant's too long, but at least it's good the whole time, you know, in terms of like the visuals and stuff. This one, the visuals fall apart after a while because we're all stuck in this room with these people. The story's going nowhere. This movie literally should have been about an hour shorter, and it might have been great. Well, you know, I, I, that's an interesting comparison too, because you know, while the Revenant, you know, I think it makes when the, the Revenant, Revenant feel concise, I'm just well, gonna, it I'm does. Just gonna but say. like, I, I think part of the reason is that when the Revenant meanders, which it does quite a bit, it's still, you know, there's still something we we know where it's going. Like, even though we feel like we're taking a detour or something is maybe being elongated, it's still we're still motivated toward this revenge plot. Like, he's still making his way toward Tom Hardy, so it's it's kind of okay. It's just like he, you know, he gets like extra obstacles in the way, whereas. When that happens in this, like when Tarantino just decides that he's going to like stop the story and then show like some backstory on some characters on like how they got to the end. It's just like, oh, my God, I don't know why you're showing me this. I don't give a fuck. And then it literally like I I cannot emphasize this enough. It literally reshows the entire scene of them getting to the end from the perspective of the people inside the inn. I did not need to re-see that. I did not need to re-see that. (laughs) Did you think it was a problem that, uh, well, I, I guess I haven't asked you if you cared about any of the characters, but I didn't. And I, th- I'm not sure if that was a problem or not. I think it kind of was. Um, um, yeah, no, I didn't care about any of them, but I don't really think it's necessarily a problem as long as I felt like it was constantly moving towards something, you know, because his characters really are all designed to be entertaining. Like that's just what Tarantino yeah. does. So when, when they had good dialogue attached to them and I felt like we were moving towards some sort of like plot point or whatever, then yeah, it really didn't bother me that I couldn't get into them. But at some point in time when they're all trapped in a room together and there's nothing more we can break down in terms of learning about them, they all just become boring characters that I've seen in other Tarantino films. And at yeah. that point, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. So. I agree. I, don't, I just don't know what to say, other than the fact that, like, I, I love Tarantino, I want him to keep doing stuff. The fact that he had this release in the 70mm with, you know, an overture and an intermission, like, he's a great presentation guy. In a way, like, he, he always constantly reminds us of things like film history or the lost sort of, like, chapters of film, you know, by putting the Panavision logo on there and stuff. Like, this is a guy who's seen a lot of movies. Um, he really encapsulates a lot of Hollywood history in each of his films, and I think he's really important. But I want him to do something a little bit different at this point because I've seen eight of these movies now where he's done the same thing and this is evidence to me that he sort of like doesn't have anything original left to do he's explored his voice completely Brad you talk about this all the time you want directors to like go out of their voice a little bit and change things up and I think he started doing that a little bit with Django which dealt with some serious issues but Hateful Eight is not serious enough for him to be going away from his totally fun voice and it's not fun enough to just be pure entertainment. So I think it's it's. I just think it falls flat. I think the reviews for this are way off base. I don't get yeah, why people I, like this I, at all. Yeah, I really don't understand the reviews for this. Um, I want him to take some leaps, man. I want him to if, like if he wants to like give deep social commentary like he did in Django, fine, do that. But like Hateful Eight does not, and like Hateful Eight has a few lines where it does that. But you have to be looking for them to see the social commentary. You really. I don't. mean, I, 
I, I think I think a couple, you know, I think, you know, like that that line that I mentioned about, you know, black folks, black people being scared and, and white people are safe. Like, I, I think that one was like obvious, like wearing it on its sleeve. But, yeah, I, I think a lot of it, like if it's there, um, you know, and it might be there. But uh, I, I think after a while, I, I just I, I was I, I just didn't care. I, I didn't care about even paying attention to the movie at, at a certain point. And, you know, I, I was really ready to go. No, but at some point um, in time, do you also have to wonder, like where the social t- commentary is coming from. Like, is Tarantino really the kind of director who's going to make a change in someone's heart and mind if they watch this film? And if not, then why are we even putting the social commentary in there? Like, I think with Django, like, the anti-slavery, anti-racism sort of message, um, you know, that was sort of presented from the, <laughs> the sort of presented from the beginning. But but even, even that film, to some extent, like, I'm watching a Tarantino film for the violence, for the fun, for the, you know, the absurd characters, for the weird prop moments, that kind of thing. Like, that's why I watch him. I'm, I'm not going to, like, leave the movie and think to myself, like, holy shit, film really could take down the Nazis. Like, thank I, you, I, when, That, that <laughs> is, like, you. my least favorite quote from Tarantino of all time. I'm going to use the power of film to bring down the Third Reich. Yeah. Fuck off. I know. Like, how, like, like again, like, you're, you're, <laughs> like, you have to understand what you're doing. If you're purely a director who's making things that are fun and quirky and strange, fine. But, like, don't pretend that, like, your movie's going to change the world then. So Hateful Eight, like, it's almost like he wants to add importance to the film artificially, so he throws in those moments of brief brief social commentary. But I'm not even sure that race relations is the primary focus of the film from the get-go. I just feel like that's added in at, at you know, occasional times. But just because, yeah. like, you know, some white guy is calling some black guy the N-word at the beginning of the film is not an indication to me that I'm taking away some sort of social commentary. He might just like saying the N-word because it's weird to see on the screen. I think I think at this point it's it's a it's a just a total fucking obsession for him. Like you know he's always like you know rewatching Reservoir Dogs, which is his first film. Uh, like it, characters kind of go out of their way to say it a little bit. Um, but like at this point, I mean, there's literally an ex- a dialogue exchange in this film where they say it like five times within 15 words and it's just like it repeats it for no reason other than like shock value or because he just loves the word and like I, I don't like I don't know if I'm offended by it or I'm not if- offended by it I just wish that I just wish that it was attached to something a little bit more intelligent sometimes like hatefully yeah is kind of a dumb film. yeah so I think it worked really well in Django a lot of like the the racist language and stuff was was really effective in that film uh, well, and it actually had a place. It did. It know, had like a place. It, it made sense that those late. characters would be doing it. And, like, it kind of makes sense that these characters would, too, but, but only because of the time out of his though, way to do it. Yeah. Only because yeah, of the time yeah, you're right. this takes place. You're right. So, and that's, that's not um, enough. That's not enough for me. This is a movie. Yeah. And this is obviously not a movie that's attempting any kind of level of realism. So, get you know, get out of here. Like, the historical context really doesn't matter either. <laughs> So they, they, there's fucking anachronisms all over the place. Like he pulls out the glasses case early on. It looks like he got him at fucking Zenny Optical. You know, yeah, or, or the White Stripes song that yeah, plays yeah, for like 20 that? seconds. Yeah. I was like, what? Are, why did he do that? He has any Morricone you know, scoring the film, and he pulls out a, like 30 seconds of a White Stripes song. I was like, why? I don't it know, so that he can the make David it Bowie funny when he goes Bastards. to like murder the guy in, the, in the, the bathroom stall or whatever the hell he does. So you can I, make that I funny. Just, I just don't know why, man. And, you know, there was another, like, anachronistic music cue in the movie, too. And it was like, you know, and again, it was only, like, another 20 seconds. I was like, why the fuck did you do that? That was, you know, like, I had a friend that was defending it because he liked it and he thought it was cool. But, you know, I was just thinking, like, that's something that is is so, like, blatantly uh, anachronistic and, like, totally shakes me from the reality of the film that, like, you know, it has to be there for a reason other than to be cool. And even if it's just there to be cool, it actually has to be cool. Right, like Pulp Fiction. 
everything's in there just to be cool. It's funny. I read the screenplay. Brad, you had a famous argument with one of your teachers who said it had some sort of social commentary message. It doesn't. Oh, There's God. only parts of the screenplay where he's just like, Vincent Vegas riding in his car. He looks cool. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I know what that scene's supposed to be about now. Yeah. Just why that sentence. Well, and the difference is uh, in Pulp Fiction, it is Vincent Vega cool. is cool. Yeah. Whereas like in this, the, the White Stripe song wasn't cool. Him, like, him getting I, killed because he goes to the bathroom is a cool, memorable movie moment. This, yeah, the yeah. equivalent in this film is forgettable. Forgettable, dude. I don't. Yeah. In fact, I don't even know what you're talking about because I fucking forgot it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I one one last note though to you know you mentioned Pulp Fiction. I do love that he brought back red apple cigarettes in this. Or, he did. Or tobacco. That was really strange. I actually didn't even think about that until you pointed it out. But yes, uh, he does like make references to a lot of his older films during his movies, and I felt like that was a nice nod to it. I yeah. like that little nod, yeah. I like that too. I will say one more thing uh, before we move on, and that's that even during the bad scenes, I think Tarantino does a great job of creating cool visuals. Uh, even during the last act of the movie, which I think is just a complete and total fucking disaster, at least the violence and some of the, the shots were really neat. Like, I love that when they start shooting up the place and you have, like, these candy jars that are smashing and stuff and there's a ton of blood. It was awesome looking and very effective and very fun. And at that moment, I kind of loved Tarantino, but it was literally like seconds that I would love him with an hour long drags. Yeah. In fact, you know, I, I guess not mentioning that up to this point has been kind of unfair to the movie because there are like, yeah, yeah I, I this was, is at, not at, a bad film. This is just a, a certain, bad Tarantino yeah. film. At a certain point, I was I was kind of hating it. And uh, but there were still like. You know, every couple of minutes there would be like, God damn, that's an amazing shot. Like, the, you know, toward the end, there's a, there's a shot where uh, Samuel L. Jackson gets into Damien Bashir's face. And it's a, like an extreme close up of, of just their heads facing each other. And they're like the brims of their hats are touching and like they're flooded with light from the bottom. So it looks like their beards are glowing. Yeah, that's an amazing shot. And I was dude. just like, holy fuck, this is amazing. There are a couple shots, too, where um, he went up like to make things interesting or whatever. He went up into the rafters of this sort of hostel. And yeah, yeah, that was cool. It was too. neat. It was a good. It yeah. Was like it's like showing like the snowshoes up there, like all these random things that were stored up there. Yeah, And like there was I a, thought that was. Yeah, it was really cool. A couple of funny moments, too. Like when the one guy goes out in the snow for. No reason. He comes back in and he's cold and he just like, there was an earlier moment. One of the guys was cold and he walked in, he grabbed a blanket off the wall and he put itself, you know, put itself around him and it was very distinct. And then the guy comes in like, you know, an hour later, they repeat this scene, except another person comes in and he grabs a bear rug off the wall. It's <laughs> yeah. really exaggerated. He grabs it, he like, wraps himself in it, lays it for the fire. And I literally laughed out loud. And it's just like, I wish you could have maintained that charm throughout the film. And maybe he could have, if he just cut out all that murder mystery garbage literally just took it out of the film you would have an hour and a half long movie and it might actually be good but instead yeah. you know but you need you love him and you want another hour of crap in there so yeah you know like i, I was saying you know like i've talked about this with with a couple people now and like i've been saying that you know had this come in under two hours i think i would have loved it so would i because um, it would have just been it would have had some great dialogue and like ridiculous moments and i would have left there remembering and i'm mean, sorry there's something hilarious about uh samuel jackson detailing a rape scene to me where he makes a man suck his penis like that is a hilarious it, fucking scene it was really really <laughs> sadistic you know and that yeah that's that's sadistic, the bruce dern scene but funny but yeah, funny, no, effective. it was great. You know, it, it was one of these things that like, you know, again, like at that point, I wasn't really enjoying the movie. Yeah. There had been like a, a good 30 minute lull. Um, but then in that scene, like it started and I was like, oh, my God, this is like he's just, here he goes. He's just going to go off on tangents again. And then like as it went and like build it up some tension, 
sorry, built up some tension, uh, you know, and, and like really like he was totally in control of the mood and the tone and like, like Tarantino just fucking nailed that scene. Yeah, I, you know, he's a it, fucking it so maestro good. at that moment, dude. Flawless. Yeah, it was amazing. Yep. Like he, he, he totally had me and like, I got excited for, you know, the rest of the film. I was like, man, we're finally taking off. And then it's, you know, and then this happens. Then, then Where we less the... left our characters. <laughs> <laughs> there was Asinine some coffee poison. Murder mystery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which was just sad. That was really sad. Uh, moving on, our last film we're going to talk about is uh, David O. Russell, one of my favorite directors as well. Got three great directors here on the show today. Mm-hmm. His newest film, Joy. Brad, on this very program, I defended the shit out of American Hustle, and I will maintain <laughs> that defense to this day. I rewatched it just last night, just for oh, the really? show. Yes, sir. I'm fresh off it. Still love the hell out of that movie. Joy, love the first act. Second and third act be damned. They weren't no Dave, Dave, Dave O'Russell film that I would like. Um, it's funny. Like, I, I feel so vindicated now, you know, because what I said on that American Hustle show, uh, you know, everyone loved that movie. And, I, like, I saw problems where, like, he he's so good at, like, directing, directing the one scene that you're watching, but then putting it in context, you know, in the film or in a larger story or even even just in a larger, like, character arc he just kind of like he gets lost a little bit how do you feel vindicated wait a minute because joy is like that to the extreme right because joy okay i'll go ahead i'm sorry well i feel vindicated because i've seen a bunch of reviews from like critics that loved american hustle and now they're saying that exact thing about joy uh and condemning it where like i don't know like i've seen this in a couple david russell movies now like the fighter had the same issues um well the fighters the fighter was just the fighter really wasn't in his natural voice. It didn't have any kind of his humor and stuff. It was just a weird, straightforward kind of character study slash biography slash sports drama. And that was but his see, problem. Yeah, see, that's the thing. That's too many slashes that I don't agree. combine with each other. And, like, I think that's his problem is the, problem sometimes. I mean, when when he makes a great movie like Three Kings or Silver Lines Playbook, like, he when he's on, he's fucking on and he's brilliant. Um, but I, th- I think he like sometimes he just gets lost in like the minutia and showing like all these intricate details that he's really great at. And it's really entertaining to watch like that, you know, the, the sisters in the fighter are amazing. You know, like he, he just nails all these little details. And, you know, American Hustle has a ton of them, too, where like, man, you know, the scene that I'm watching is really great. But it just doesn't make sense in the overall film for me. And Joy is the same way. Where like I agree that that first act was really fun was to really watch. Great, like man. The, the, you know, uh, introducing all these. Ooh. Yeah, 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 the, yeah, yeah. Like so that kind funny. of piece of shit father. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was really great, and uh, well, not really great. Like I was still kind of wondering where it was going, but I had trust in David Russell to take me somewhere, and I think that's part of the reason that I liked it because I thought it was going somewhere. See, um, but I, then I guess by that the I, second, I didn't even care where it was going because every scene was good, and I think that's what American Hustle was like. The plot only kind of loosely strung it all together and was excellent where joy falls apart for me is that first plot point when it's like they introduce this moment where she's going to sell this mop and then at that point in time it became so focused on that element of the story that it forgot the quirky characters what i loved yeah but like it still had them in there a lot and like but again it just went nowhere yeah it, it like it went nowhere it just went straight into the fucking ground and it sort of made me retroactively dislike that first act because i realized that he you know it was just david russell kind of like doing his thing where you know he presents all like this weird dysfunctional family which he loves to do and he does it really well but 
it just goes nowhere. It's like, I, like I, I, like when I saw Virginia Madsen, her mother, when I saw her glasses, like those ridiculous oversized glasses, I was like, man, I bet David Russell saw a picture of her mother, and that's when he agreed to do the movie. He's like, I, I love those glasses. Like that's such a cool detail I got to exploit in the movie because yeah. her mother just like there's she has nothing to do in the movie. Like, you know, she has like this this character arc or some semblance of a character arc that just disappears. Like she disappears from the movie after like 25 minutes. And it's like, why you just showed her because she's quirky and weird had nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Well, I mean, I guess that like to some extent, uh, his films are really hard to pinpoint his voice. I would say that Joy, the first act is very similar to American Hustle. But if you want to go back to like Silver Linings Playbook, which I consider to be his masterpiece, that film has quirky characters in it, but they're presented in a very serious way. They're not presented in a way where I feel like they couldn't exist in reality. These are like people who deal with real problems. They're just you know, just outside of reality a little bit, but he presents them very seriously, and I'm supposed to take them very seriously. Whereas American Hustle and the first act of Joy, it's pretty obvious that the characters on screen are fictional, and they're kind of a gag. So he, You know, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, I think the difference is that like he presents uh, sort of people who are inherently sort of odd or strange i mean or you know they're mentally disabled well, a little bit like that was the difference I'm talking, there silver Lines i'm talking playbook. silver lines playbook yeah oh, like yeah, okay. the, yeah they're, they're they're like you know uh, they have some like uh, stability issues so like he doesn't need to make them weird like he just so he presents them sort of straight on and it really works whereas in this he takes sort of real people and turns them into like weird caricatures and, you know, decides that he's going to amp up the style instead, and it just didn't work. See, but it worked in American Hustle for me because it was consistent throughout. And, the, the, like, the, the story there, the narrative in there, or whatever, like, didn't necessarily matter because scene by scene it was really entertaining. They were good scenes, and the story was just loose enough where I could sort of follow it. It was, like, a nice balance. But Joy literally, like, hits a roadblock. We introduced this mob story, and it gets so focused on the plot <laughs> that it forgets about the goofiness in the characters. And I want to reiterate, that was the problem for me. The first act in and of itself was not a problem it's that the second and third act forgot to be like the first act where really like the story is not what's important it's the quirky characters you created show me them it stopped instead it was about this woman trying to succeed selling this mop and it became this underdog tale that i've seen in a thousand other films and i just don't care oh by the way chad do you know what a mop does yeah god thank yeah i know all about a mop now (laughs) why because they told you 167 times how many mop demonstrations were in that film oh my god you know what's weird about this is i don't really think the film had any kind of like themes or message it was sending but like someone that i've had two people tell me this now actually that's true where they're like oh i like the movie because it presents entrepreneurs in like a positive light does it like i didn't really get any kind of message I mean, from this. I, I guess it does like well it Maybe. does start you know the the intro like the title card it says like uh this is a story you know like this story happens to uh, many women this is the story of one or something so it was like it set it up as like this sort of feminist thing which was kind of interesting what? but but um, then like that feels i feel like that's negated in the first act because i'm not taking anything serious when, you know, with this weird, quirky family, they all have some sort of gimmick to them, and that's absolutely the case. Like, one of them is a singer. The mother won't leave her bed. She watches TV. You know, Robert De Niro is terrible with why women. Did, he constantly... Why did it open on the soap opera? I don't know, and I think it's... That was I, so I weird. Think that he, I, I guess that I thought about this a little bit, and I think it's, again, so we can present these characters as completely fictional and drive home how fictional they are. And that's the reason the first act works. That scene between Robert De Niro and his wife, where Robert De Niro is having the mental breakdown, he's flipping out, and he's, like, very calmly smelling glasses that was hilarious that like really made me laugh out loud there was a very effective scene because it wasn't realistic they were quirky bizarre characters but in the second fucking act when robert de niro is the businessman i didn't give a shit about him anymore 
Yeah, well, I mean, that, that see, I think that's the problem is, you know, it's funny, like, you know, Tarantino's film is called The Hateful Eight and it has all these, like, uh, you know, sort of loathsome characters, but I hated watching the characters enjoy after the first act. That's I thought they, they were so obnoxious. That's because all the like, development he gave us was thrown out the window. It's like two movies here, man. It's like two goddamn what? movies. You know, the thing is, like, I felt like for the first, you know, that first act, I, I felt like um, the fact that they were obnoxious was sort of the point because we were seeing it through Jennifer Lawrence's eyes and she was sort of like this stable character that, like, we sympathized with. So, like, seeing her annoying family was like, oh, man, that must be really hell for her. But then after that, like, it sort of loses it and it gets it, it picks up that that like, you know, that underdog plot, or, you know, the mop plot. And so we're just sort of watching all these characters and they're so fucking obnoxious to watch that like it stopped being the, you know, the joke or the, you know, the, the sort of tension that they were grading her nerves and they were just grading my fucking nerves. That's exactly and by the end, I fucking hated it. Oh, like, so it did was, I. It was <laughs> really hated the characters by the end, man. Oh my God. I just wanted to leave the theater so fast. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, like it was funny. Like I, I saw this on Christmas day. It's like a tradition that I see a movie with my aunt and uncle and I was sitting next to my uncle and like 25 minutes in, he leaned over and he was like, who wrote this shit? And it, you know, and I was kind of thinking, like, you know, I was thinking, like, that's I, you blunt, know, I, man, that's blunt. Yeah, yeah, I, like it was pretty extreme, and I was thinking, like, I still kind of like this, you know, like, you know, this is weird. I'm not sure exactly what's what's going on or where it's going, but like, I was trusting that David Russell was going to go somewhere with it. Like, I thought it was interesting up to that point. You know, you know almost like he was sort of creating like a new form of narrative, but then man, he just goes into that like extremely standard form of narrative where he's just going to like show how she got this mop to the market like uh, man and i just don't care and then she explains what the mop does a million times she does like that that's the like, half the dialogue in in the the last hour of the movie you know i feel like i have to make the west west uh west anderson comparison because i feel like uh in american hustle maybe not necessarily as much but certainly with the first act of joy like he really does present just quirky characters that don't exist in reality but i'm thinking back to darjean limited which is my favorite west anderson film um, you know, you have these quirky sort of weird characters that don't exist in reality up to a certain point, And then the serious moment happens with, um, if you haven't seen, and spoiler alert, it was years ago <laughs> for like the eight year old movie, this kid dies. Right. And then at that point in time, like I took the movie more seriously and it presented me with that and it worked. Joy doesn't give me the opportunity to do that because it starts so early with the sort of seriousness of its plot. And it's introducing a woman trying to sell a mop. That that was difficult for me to take as a necessary turning point where I should start taking these characters seriously. And because they're so quirky and so unrealistic in the first act, it's just like a it's just completely misbalanced. Like he really, really like doesn't have a good gauge of, of where he's going in terms of their development and their flow. And again, I, I point back to American Hustle. The reason that film works, I'm still defending it, it's still great, is because they're quirky and strange and unrealistic the entire way through, and the narrative comes second. When As soon as the plot comes first in this movie, man, it's a disaster. Like, that's where its downfall comes in. The downfall right comes in is that he goes back into the traditional three-act structure as opposed to just, you know, making interesting scenes. And uh, it's a disaster at that point, man. But he doesn't pull it off the same way that Wes Anderson does. Wes you Anderson, know, when he like, introduces that seriousness, it's successful. The, I think the difference is, like, that's an interesting comp. And I think I think what Wes Anderson does is, like, yeah, he gives us sort of, you know, he creates a, a, a world that isn't quite reality. You know, he has that, like, dollhouse aesthetic, you know. And, and so the characters are, are quirky and they're, and they're different and right. not quite realistic. But then he uses those, that you know, those serious moments, which I think all of his films have them. Um, Nothing like Dar- of- Darjeeling. I use the example because that was the most stark, serious moment for me. 
Yeah, but then I think he uses the like moments like that to show us who those characters are and to sort of deepen them and develop them a little bit more. Whereas David O. Russell in Joy, especially, like just doesn't do that. Like yeah, you he got just a point. It, like I feel like they get more generic as they go. You got a point. American Hustle but, doesn't do that either. Like Wes Anderson films really are sort of a spiritual journey of growth in some manner. Like these characters grow and change no matter what. I didn't really see any growth and change from the characters in American Hustle. I just didn't care. Like, I don't really feel like that was necessarily what that movie's going for. With Joy, I got growth from the character and change from the character, but I didn't care because I wanted the character I had in the first act. Yeah, I, I wanted the dynamic that I had in the first Seriously, act. Seriously, I because wanted I think that, fun. That, so. Yeah, because that's where it excelled is in the dynamic. And, uh, you know, it sort of made me care about the character. But then when, you know, when he sort of shifts off that, I, I you know, he kind of pivots to, like, the home shopping network and man i just didn't care it is um, man and like you know like i've read the real story after the fact of the the real joy woman and like she's awesome like i love the fact that she escaped wage slavery by selling this mop on tv and like i think that's awesome like more power to you like rock on that's totally badass um but that's not really the film i got like i don't really feel like this is fair to call this a biopic of her life in no, any stretch no. of the imagination this is way too david o russell yeah, to be like, a biopic i just don't really compare this to a real person and as as a fictional woman she's uninteresting so. you know like it was one of those things like while i was watching it I, you know i was i was kind of trying to like it because again i did like that 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 first act and i was trying to make sense of it and you know i was thinking like this is the story of a woman who created a mop and I was like, what a, you know, like what a weird sort of true story to tell in a movie to like, you know, to really magnify this and make a whole movie about it. And I thought it was kind of interesting. But then again, it just it just goes nowhere. And then like I thought that scene at the end when uh, when it showed that like she was super successful. Oh, uh, when, God, when what the, the, was that with Brandon yeah, Cooper yeah. coming up and they're like <laughs> sharing that moment and, you know. Oh, oh I thought God. I thought the moment that preceded it, where like the 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 black woman comes in and gives it, like hands her a widget, and uh, and she's just like, oh wow, I really love this. Uh, we we got to put her in the best hotel. You got to stay for a couple of days. Uh, we're gonna create this with it, our our designers and give me your boss's phone number at where you work. I'll call and get you out of work. I was like, what the fuck yeah, was, is this? You're gonna give her a permission slip? Super unrealistic. Like this is so dumb. I know, and I love that. And then there's that weird line from the voiceover, like. Like Joy never forgot who she was again. Like Joy always remember, like remembered her values or whatever the case may be. Like no, who fucking cares? Like oh, I, and also like talk, talk about, about asinine, <laughs> talk about asinine narration. Like it was bad in Hateful Eight. It was so much worse in this. It where, was. Like, her, was it her grandmother's her grandma, voice? Because her, like, this weird side yes. story. Like okay, because that is that okay. That relationship right there is one of the pitfalls of the film because that oh, is not awful. established. Like the grandmother is the only normal person in the house and the only one who supports her in the house in the first act. So it kind of like you know helps us like create a really sympathetic and interesting character out of uh, out of joy um who's again played by you know played by uh, jennifer lawrence does a great job but then like the grandmother relationship in the second act when like she dies and then like sort of becomes so the narrator weird. like i lost it man. oh like, she's the narrator the whole time but then but like, i didn't really but then care she that dies she died. in the film like, was that supposed to be emotionally ne- neither did i me? i think it was supposed to because like the movie stops and she comes home from houston or whatever to you know and like the whole family is gathered around and like this gauntlet of people like leading up to the room where her grandmother's dead and like i was thinking did her kid die because like the the fact that they spent so much time on on her grandmother's death was so weird because it didn't even seem like she liked her grandmother. No, so like just, the fact that this was some could... emotional moment, I was like, what the fuck? I was so confused when that happened. They should have spent more time developing that. That would have been a good moment to move this towards like a serious sort of biopic. That would have been the kid dying moment of uh, Darjeeling Limited. But instead, yeah. the seriousness starts so much before that. 
um, that it's by the time we got there, like I had forgotten all about her grandmother, who's not on the screen that often. And when she died, like I had forgotten all about that she was what grounded this character in reality in the first act because it, like everyone else had been grounded in reality twenty minutes ago. Yeah. So I mean, I, does that make any sense to you? Like I just felt like that was ineffective. Uh, as a, not necessarily a fault of the script, but maybe it's a fault of the director for not le- keeping the tone consistent. Well, I mean, David Russell co-wrote it, so I mean, yeah, it's true. It, whoever's fault it is, it's David Russell, whether yeah. it's writer or director. I just, I just thought um, like a lot of that, like any kind of moment that would like have an emotional grip to me, like failed. And I feel like that, like uh, sort of moment at the end where she challenges. I'm not going to call this a spoiler. She challenged the guy sort of screwing over in the hotel room. Like, I felt like in any other movie that could have been like a triumphant, like awesome, like feminist moment. But instead, I didn't give a shit. I didn't care at all. Like, I was over the whole plot by that point, man. Like, that came way too late. Oh, so. I, I I agree. I like, yeah, I... I, yeah, I, I was so tired of the whole thing uh, a long time before that, you know. And but again, like I, I think it's, I think it's just like American Hustle, where like I think if he had magnified any one of these stories, which there are a lot, like if he had shown just the family aspect of it, or just her trying to get the mop, you know, into into stores, or uh, like just certain aspects of the movie, it would have been really interesting. But the fact that he just tries to cram it all in this like one weird, big, random ball of a movie. Yeah, and it's it's it almost terrible. like a giant hour montage because we see her going out failing in front of stores. We see her trying to sell it in other places. She bombs out. Then we see her going to a whole shopping network. It's a failure. Then we see how she develops that. It's almost like a, it's like so much happens within this like second act period, this like 20 minute, 25 minute period that there's so much for me to follow that I just lost track of all that and didn't care. Like, I was over it. Well, yeah, it's funny. Like, I lost track of the characters, too. Like, I actually forgot that she had two kids because they never show her son. And it was just like, oh. uh, No, and then they introduce weird things to her. Like, one of her kids gets sick, and you feel like it's going to be something kind of serious. The grandmother comes downstairs, and then the the grandmother's death happens soon after that. And I was like, did one of her kids die? That's what I thought. I thought her kid died. We left it. You know, and I don't even remember what gender yeah. her kids were. I don't know anything about them. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious, I really don't. <laughs> no, uh, I think it was a boy and a girl. I but uh, so. yeah, like yeah, I, I just like he like has so many like loose threads that then yeah, like you're right. When when we pick back up on certain storylines, it's like, well, what happened with that? Uh, yeah, like, why I, I would you know. spend so much time showing the kid get sick just to sort of abandon it after we see the kid sick? We ne- we never just go goes back nowhere. To- Goes nowhere. I mean, was that supposed to show how like she's trying to juggle these these multiple lives? If so, the first I, act was much more effective at that when it when it oh, like it, focused on comedy. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I yeah, I didn't. I I don't really have anything else to say about it. It was just. I, I feel like we're just going to go around in circles yeah, talking so. about like just naming more terrible things from the movie. Uh, um, anyway, yeah, not going to make my top ten either, man. What a weird. Uh, yeah, like, you know, and it's funny, like, I think all three of these films, you know, I think I mentioned on a show like a month or two ago that like a, a friend of mine had asked me what my like what the five movies I was most excited for in the rest of the year. All three of the movies we discussed on the show were on that that yeah, list that ditto. I gave him. Absolutely ditto, man. I, and like, DJ Pimp Daddy, our only listener, tweeted at us and was like, Are you excited <laughs> for joy. And I was like, definitely. I love David O. Russell. Yeah. Excited to see it. Nope. I yeah I mean both of these movies just so disappointing uh I I just Tarantino was the biggest one for me Brad you had to deal with me talking about how excited I was for this movie and how much you love Tarantino (laughs) well I mean I was was excited for it too I was really curious you know because like Tarantino you know as much as I don't like him he's he's so immensely talented that he you know at any moment he could make just a, a fucking masterpiece um and and I truly believe that I think he still has a masterpiece in him 
Um, you don't think it's uh, Inglorious Bastards? He does. Yeah, no. Or he did at the time. I anyway. saw that line. Give him something. This might be my there. masterpiece. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just I, you know I, I had high hopes for it. I, I still thought it could be really good, but um, man, it was it was abysmal by the end. Yes, sir. Right, well, I guess that's it. Um, this first show, of 2016. We have a lot of different episodes planned for you guys. We're still going to launch that cinema tangent, cinema tangent blog. Cinematic Tangent Blog. My God, I don't even know the name of the show. That's how fucking tired I am. <laughs> I'm not even drunk. Like, this is outrageous. I got, I got to go to bed. All right. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm Chad Van Alston. I promise I'm more, co- more coherent on Twitter. If you want to follow me there, you can follow me at Chad Van Alston. My blog is chadmichaelvanalston.blogspot.com. Brad can be found on Twitter at Max Fisher. That's a Rushmore reference. Brad, are you blogging? Uh no I I mean I, I will be for for the cinema or cinematic tangent whatever you want to call it Chad yep uh but yeah we'll we'll be getting that going soon absolutely but no I haven't I haven't blogged in a year if you want to keep updated on the show follow us at cinema tangent on Twitter we're gonna start tweeting more again we just uh you know forget to log into the show account sometime you can also email the show at thecinematictangent at gmail we actually have some listener mail that we will read on the next episode that I forgot to bring out so that's it um. Yeah, guys, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back soon. I'm Chad Van Alston. And I'm Brother Redder. We are out. Thank you very much. Have a great 2016. Goodbye.